Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here tonight with Mike Yuseem, and together we have the great pleasure of, intro- of introducing our second guest tonight, and he is in studio. He is Dr. Corrado Conchetta, Director of the Botswana UPenn Partnership and Strategic Advisor for Academic Partnerships at the Center for Global Health at the Perlman School of Medicine here at Penn. Corrado, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. The pleasure <laughs> is absolutely mine. Not only here, Corrado, but you come in from Botswana, so doubly thank you for being here. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Penn? Um, yeah, it, it's been a it's been a little convoluted. I I joined Penn in in July uh-huh. um, when I when I took the job of director of the Botswana Yipen Partnership. Before I was at Harvard and at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston for for uh, the previous twelve years, and that's really where I had my career in in, in global health. And um, I was sort of looking for like a new challenge, a new a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. I had done great work uh, um, at uh, at Harvard and at Brigham Women's Hospital, also with partners in health and. Uh, yeah, I just felt like I was ready to try something different. And uh, I had a link with UPenn also because my wife uh, uh, had been living in Philadelphia for a couple of years. She was doing a PhD in nursing. Oh, uh, very here. good. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of uh, reached out to people at the Center for Global Health, and we did some consultancy work together in Nigeria, and we had a great time. And this opportunity came up, and, yeah, I decided to take it. Yeah, I know we have some important topics to get to, but I can't resist asking you about your what drew you to global health mm-hmm. and and in particular infectious diseases. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been a it's it's been an interesting uh, trajectory mm-hmm. uh, that as well. I, you know, what really drew me to global health uh, is. Um, when I, when I started doing, so I did my medical uh, school in Italy, and I started a residency program there briefly. So I practiced as a clinician in Italy, socialized medicine. and uh, But then, you know, I decided I really wanted to pursue my postgraduate training as a clinician in the United States. And I did my residency in the Bronx at mm-hmm. Einstein in one of the yes. largest city hospitals there. And immediately I was... I was struck by how much sicker patients were compared to the ones that I was uh, caring for in Italy. Hmm. Um, you know, in Italy, I would see patients with diabetes or uh, hypertension, and they would f- be fairly advanced in age, often would come in clinic with a family member, um, you know, had a, f- had a fairly compensated disease. You know, sometimes you would have these like 85-year-old grandmothers that would remind you that you wanted uh-huh. to increase their medication dose. And then when I started practicing in the Bronx, I had patients that had the same conditions but were 30 years younger and had any complication under the book. So if they had diabetes or hypertension, they were blind, had a heart attack, were on dialysis. And I couldn't figure out why that was until I realized that, you know, they were often minorities, uh, poor uh, um, immigrants sometimes, mental health issues, that there was this whole Hmm. plethora of socioeconomic, psychosocial factors that made them sick in the first place and Hmm. made them not do well even after they got a diagnosis. Uh, and I became familiar with the work of Dr. Paul Farmer, who's you know world-renowned medical yeah. anthropologist, the founder of Partners in Health, and um, and I reached out to him and I reached out to folks at Partners in Health, saying, "Hey, I'm seeing these things, and the only place where I've seen them uh, addressed in a way that resonates with me is in your books and the work that you do. Can I can I work with you?" And I, honestly, I would have been perfectly content to <laughs> practice in the United States. Uh, but, you know, uh, um, <laughs> they asked me to go to Lesotho, and, uh, and, huh. and that's how it all started. Oh, boy. And by coincidence, Mike, you may not know this, but my son Sam is in Lesotho right now uh, okay. and we'll at a re- wedding of a friend awesome. from re- college. Remind us where Lesotho <laughs> is. <laughs> Just next to South Africa on the very tip, if I have that yeah. right. Okay. It's surrounded by South yeah. Africa. It's called the Mountain Kingdom, and it's gorgeous. It It's it's in the Drakensberg Mountain Range. It looks like the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just unbelievably beautiful place. 
So good. Well, Mike, why don't you pick up the questioning? Why don't we uh, maybe move back a couple of years? And, uh, Carter, I know you were very active in a couple of countries Mm -hmm. that uh, hit very hard, West Africa by Ebola a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago now. Uh, One of the toughest infectious diseases out there, Mm -hmm. uh, death rates very high, mortality very high, and lasting consequences very significant for those who do survive. Uh, just a purely personal question here. What, what drew you to becoming involved, as so many public health people did, mm-hmm. in this massive outbreak, the biggest ever in history, yeah. in uh, West Africa now a couple of years back? What, what drew you into it? Um, you know, so I felt I had the experience and the skills to be helpful because I, uh, by then I had already practiced uh, as a uh, global health um, professional for almost 10 years, and I had a training in infectious diseases. And not only that, I had managed large and complex initiatives, uh, primarily in Rwanda. So I I felt I had a skill set that that could be helpful in uh, in Sierra Leone. There was the moral imperative. I mean, you can't just, like, witness what's happening. (coughs) And and, and if you feel like you could do something about it, just... uh, uh, just uh, watch it from a distance. And, you know, if you do global health and you don't do this, you know, what, what, what are you in the field for? So it was a combination of factors. Yep. Which brings us to the topic of the program, leadership yeah. and action. <laughs> and I'm really interested in your own personal movement from serving as a clinical physician. You, you treat uh, individual patients, but you have been involved for years now and you write about um, well, partnerships, we've already used yeah. that word, but also capacities, yeah. a country's capacity to uh, fight back and, and con- well, control and hopefully eradicate Ebola, for example. So what led you to moving not only from your own personal clinical experience, mm-hmm. treating patients one at a time, to becoming concerned with a system or a capacity or organizational yeah. delivery? Oh, what? What got you from A to B on that one? Yeah. <laughs> well, in retrospect, it looks like a pretty linear process. It yeah. didn't feel like it when yeah. I was in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I started working uh, as a clinician in Lesotho. Um, this was 2007. Uh, and, you know, I would I would work in these very, very remote areas. They would actually fly us uh, with, mm. with, like, one of those small mm. Cessna planes <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. It was like there were these clinics where... I would work side by side with local staff and and see and, and some colleagues and and see uh, patients all the time. Even sometimes do community outreach efforts mm-hmm. to to see how people were doing in their own in their own communities. A uh, lot of HIV, a lot of TB, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I I moved to to Rwanda um, where I lived for four years. And again, I started working as a clinician in very remote parts of the country where Partners in Health was was based with colleagues of mine and, and working side by side with local staff. And, of course, you want to do the best you can as a clinician. And mm-hmm. it was very challenging to work there as a clinician because you had patients who were really sick and you really didn't have the tools of the trade to, mm-hmm. to treat them as well as you know they could be treated, for example, here in the United States. And, you know, the whole experience is very humbling, is very overwhelming, uh, but it's also incredibly grounding it, it really allows you also to to have incredible empathy for for local mm. staff you know understanding that you may be struggling as you do it for 6 months a year they do it all their lives uh, i mean it, it's just incredibly powerful experience and then you realize that if i don't focus if i don't take a step back and focus on systems. As, as much as I try to do the best that I can with the patient that I have in front of me, and there's absolutely value in that, but if at some point I don't take a step back and I look at the bigger picture, the impact that I'll have is going to be limited. And actually, that's something that Paul Farmer really taught me. Like I. I had uh, started working in uh, Rwanda for a few months, and I was rounding every day, like in the in the wards of these these very remote uh, district hospitals or clinics, and I was feeling overwhelmed. And he said, "You know what? Just come with me. Let's <laughs> do a road trip. Let, let's go and visit mm. some of the other uh, health facilities where you don't work." Let's go meet other organizations that do work uh, uh, in in Rwanda in in the health sector. It's just important for you to take a step back and and look at the big picture um, and start working on on building some systems. 
And it, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually one of the great lessons that I that I learned. So, Karada, really interesting point. Let me just uh, make a comment here, and then back over to Anne. <clears throat> As you think about your own evolution and your broadening and becoming involved in systems, and we'll come back to what you did in Sierra Leone and Liberia in a few minutes. Uh, Paul Farmer very important in your life yeah. as, as yeah. a person who kind of showed you to the way, so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. Uh, are there other coaches, mentors yeah. along the way? I, I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely uh, a tremendous influence. Another key person is uh, the former Minister of Health of Rwanda, Ines Binaguaho, who uh, has really been uh, uh, instrumental in, in um, a lot of the achievements that Rwanda has had uh, around around health in improving like some of their health indicators dramatically over over the past 15 years. Uh, she's just relentless and fearless mm. um, and tough as nail, like in a way that's truly inspiring and uncompromising as well. Uh, Paul is like, like that uh, as well. And, and what I really respect about both of them is that um, there's a lot of uh, what I call false dichotomies in global health. Uh, mm. So that's the tendency to say you can't do uh, one thing, you have to focus on the other one. Like mm. clinical care versus public health or infectious mm. diseases versus mm-hmm. non-communicable diseases. And, you know, one thing is to say we're going to have a phased approach we, because we can't do everything at once. One thing is to say we can only do one of two things or three things that we actually need to do. That's more of a, I guess, a coping mechanism for people not to feel overwhelmed, a way to compartmentalize than it is like sound policy. And I, I really learned that from, from them, that, that um, yeah, if you need to do it all, you need to do it all. Let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Anne Greenhall. I'm with Mike Seam, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Corrado Conchetta, director of the Botswana-UPenn Partnership. Corrado, just to follow up on Mike's really good question here, and I ask this because I'm thinking of my own children and the students that I work with who are, are very passionate about making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is one thing to work, and very valuable, to work one-on-one, as you said, as mm-hmm. a clinician, a physician, in a clinic, and yet it is another matter to be able to step back, as you said, yeah. and to be able to make systemic changes. Mike made the good connection, having a mentor like Paul Farmer and others, very important. How do you, how do you make that connection any any suggestions or thoughts for those who are trying to just lift themselves up and step back the way that you did? Yeah, like how do you find like a mentor yeah, that yeah. really inspires you? Right, and that who can help you make that next step from the local mm-hmm. to the more uh, global and systemic. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, you, you do your homework. You. you uh, you figure out what you're really passionate about, and then you figure out who who are the, the best people in whatever field you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, you just bite the bullet, I guess, and and and, yeah. and, and go for them and, mm-hmm. and and reach out. Did you uh, introduce yourself to yeah, Paul? You yeah, did to to him and to a couple of other uh, uh, key people at, at Harvard who are really respected. Yeah. Joya Mukherjee, the chief medical officer of Partners in Health, is another is another key person that has really inspired me. Uh, and uh, yeah, it takes uh, it takes some courage yeah. and it, it takes some some confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think the way you 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 get that is by doing your homework, mm-hmm. by, by by knowing for sure that you're passionate about something, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, just preparing yourself a little bit. And then did they, uh, Paul, for example, was he the one who gave you the first opportunity to say to work with him in his uh, effort? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. They, they, you know, uh, um, yeah. They they basically gave me a shot. They 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 asked me initially to volunteer for uh, a couple of months with them. I was still actually doing my training in infectious diseases at the time, and I just took the chance and loved every minute of it. And uh, uh, they enjoyed uh, enjoyed having me as well. And so they offered me a, a job at the end of my training in ID. So oh, yeah, okay. so, you know, you just have to. Go for it. Yeah. I think that's great advice, if I can underscore that, Mike. Reaching out to someone 
you know, don't sit back waiting for that mentor to suddenly appear and reach <laughs> out to you. You may have to be the totally. one who do you do your homework, yeah. you're bold, you reach out, and then you may need to also make maybe a little bit of a short-term sacrifice, volunteer, mm-hmm. and work for a little bit, and then if you're fortunate and seize the opportunity, have a chance to work in that organization and get yeah. a more global, systemic perspective. Yeah. Rod, I've got a question picking up on that about the impact when you begin to think more systemically, moving from your individual service as a as a physician in a clinic, you're treating somebody with tuberculosis, say, for example, and I know you're pretty busy when you're doing that, one yeah. patient after another, especially in some of the areas that you worked in. Would you, though, become involved in partnerships? Now you run one between yeah. our university, University of Botswana. <clears throat> You're touching a whole lot more yeah. individuals who are affected by infectious disease and some other ailments, to say the least. How many people do you think you touch now in the current partnership that you run with the University of Botswana? So how many patients a year somehow come through the system for which you bear responsibility? Yeah, uh, no, uh, that's a good question. And uh, I would say uh, in Botswana specifically, I would say it's, it's probably several thousands. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, um, that go, go through some of the hospitals where our faculty, where our faculty work. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in Rwanda, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's more yeah. than that. We're in Rwanda, we're more like in, in terms of the catchment area where, where Partners in Health was working, and some of the hospitals where I was working, and some of the the colleagues of mine were working, um, where like in, in yeah. o- over a million people. So here is where I was going with that. In in clinical work, you control the quality of the service because yeah. you're you. <laughs> yeah. You're trained. You've yeah. had a lot of All experience. Right. <laughs> but now you're bringing in other health workers, yeah. some with maybe without the same kind of training or mentoring. Uh, without the same maybe residencies that uh, you have had, have had along the way. So my question is really um, how do you help orchestrate the work mm-hmm. of a lot of people, mm-hmm. ensuring that they meet the quality standards that, of course, you uphold in, in health delivery? Uh, and in particular here as we think about, say, certain areas, and let's make it um, – Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak, areas just dangerous to be there, Um, a lot of reasons for people not to work with you. So that added one more element to what you have to manage. I like the way you you ratcheted that up, Mike. Yeah, the safety of your own people as (laughs) well. So how do you think about administering? How do you think about leading people in the field in that sense? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, even the, you know, when I say in global health, there's a lot of false dichotomies. Even mm-hmm. the dichotomy between clinical care and systems, and uh-huh. to an extent, mm-hmm. there's not a, it's a false dichotomy. I would say I'm incredibly grateful. And a lot of colleagues of mine in this line of work who, who, who uh, would agree with that. I'm incredibly grateful of the time that I spent seeing patients mm-hmm. because it really, again, it's a very grounding experience. It really informed the system yeah. thinking in a way that had I jumped directly from being a graduate uh, uh, of, of a residency program to, to systems in a way that, that, that wouldn't be as deep uh, uh, or, or profound. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, more, the more you make all the stops along the way to leadership, I think the, the, better, the better leader you will be. I mean, I think that's definitely true <laughs> for me. Uh, um, so that that was the first the first point I wanted to make. So how do you manage uh, large teams, and how do we ensure that uh, the the quality of what they do you know you mm-hmm. can you can stand by? I, I you know I, I I think I think it's about uh, well first of all making sure that uh, that the people under you uh, who themselves will supervise like teams are are really top notch. Um, and then having having actually metrics in a sense yeah. that 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 tell us that you are doing a good job and and being very rigorous in the way you you capture the information and then you, you use it to improve improve the systems along the way. Hmm. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm with Mikey Seaman. We're talking with. 
Dr. Corrado Conchetta, Director of Botswana UPenn Partnership and Strategic Advisor for Academic Partnerships at the Center for Global Health at the Perlman School of Medicine here at Penn. I'm going to follow up a little bit on uh, Mike's line of questioning, and I very much appreciate uh, you're, Corrado, you're drawing our attention to what we sometimes call a thinking trap. In other mm-hmm. words, a false dichotomy, uh, even one to you know so neatly separate clin- clinical work and systems thinking with regard to global health issues. So I'm I am wondering if in your practice now, if you are combining clinical work with your uh, managerial mm-hmm. and leadership challenges. Are you doing both at once? And if so, in what proportion? Yeah. So right now, right now, yeah. um, I, just because I started a job, I'm focusing primarily on the leadership Learning. and management yeah. mm-hmm. component. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, until a couple of years ago, I was doing I was doing both. Absolutely. Um, uh, I would say maybe. Thirty percent clinical work and seventy percent mm-hmm. uh, leadership and management. Um, uh, the ratio was different yeah. early on in mm-hmm. my career. So mm-hmm. over time, I think I've decreased the amount of clinical work that I was doing because um, the, the other the other work was becoming more and more uh, demanding. But I think, uh, uh, but I, I will want to go back to some clinical work. But again, I, I did a ton of it up front early yeah. on in my career, and I think that was incredibly important. Right. I under, I've hear that loud and clear. Yeah. I'm wondering, uh, when you think back on your medical school education, uh, what, what did you learn along the way that was especially important in your clinical work and remains important in your work leading large teams and organizations? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> we only ask tough questions yeah, here, yeah, Karata. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike so, has me trained. <laughs> so basically, what's important about being a yeah. clinician and also yeah. important about being a leader? Yeah, yeah because, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, the, what's, what's, what's that called, Mike? The Peter Principle? Is that it? You know, in other words, that we can, we can be really good at a particular job, and yeah. then all of a sudden we're promoted, we move up, and we yeah. find that we're really ill-equipped to do yeah. the job that we've, we have assumed or been promoted into. Uh, I you know I, I I think you know the ability to really like listen to really uh, mm-hmm. listen to the person who who who's who's in front of you uh, the ability to um, think programmatically or or more systematically mm-hmm. but also hone in on the details if you need because you know that clinician is to do that too right they want to yeah. have like treatment plan a diagnosis but then they need to be on top of like the lab results or uh, I, I think that 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 stays uh, that 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 stays the same in a sense a, a, a physician who practices is in a, a, a is a leader of of, of the clinical mm-hmm. team uh, that that takes care of a of, of a patient so mm-hmm. that that really doesn't change yeah and I'm sorry, and just the listening, I think, is a really such a wonderful yeah. response because, you know, you're listening in the micro setting mm-hmm. one-on-one with the patient, but then as you're working across more people and organizations, you're also listening to hear what is what is needed and what might be problematic, what needs to be addressed, yeah. what sorts of solutions might we marshal here. Yeah, and really like understanding people and what they're telling you and sometimes what they articulate mm-hmm. uh, uh, is not necessarily everything that they're feeling. Like, you know, really honing in on that uh, is critical. So good. All right, so, Mike. Corrado, we, we place a big emphasis in our school mm-hmm. on learning from experience, either passed down from mm-hmm. a previous generation or just directly hands-on. Often the latter may be mm-hmm. the most consequential, but also history is very informative. Let's go now to Sierra Leone and yeah. uh, that area. I think it was probably 2013. Mm-hmm. Ebola becomes the biggest outbreak ever. <clears throat> As I recall, the number of people who did not survive well north of 10,000. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, totally under control now, at least yeah. in, in uh, those particular countries. And looking back on that and your direct involvement and your work with the World Health Organization mm-hmm. and Partners for Health and so on, 
What are a couple lessons, if you will, yeah. that you've taken from that that inform you now in Botswana? Yeah. Um, well, one is you know the importance of of partnerships. Uh, you know that that like that epidemic was uh, so overwhelming that well, of course, the health system, the government of Sierra Leone was not equipped to to deal with it, but. No single entity or organization could have dealt with it on, on its own. You really needed a, a, a coalition, if you will, of non-governmental organizations, donors, the, the United Nations systems, all, all working together uh, towards, uh, t- towards a common goal. Um, I think that, that was a big lesson. And, and that, uh, you know, that, that, that in these circumstances a good partner uh, needs to be willing to really step out of the comfort zone be nimble mm-hmm. be flexible uh, do things different uh, from the way they're used to doing them if if that is what is needed to 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 have the desired impact mm. um, and uh, I mean I can give I can give a practical example um, you know we when when Partners in Health went in Sierra Leone. When we when we got to Sierra Leone, the epidemic was really out of control. I mean, uh, one of the districts where we where, where we ended up working, there were more than two hundred cases, new cases per week. Now, this is a highly contagious disease. The idea was that the number of cases would increase exponentially, and and uh, so the question was, okay, we've never worked in Sierra Leone, we've never uh, worked uh, uh, on an Ebola epidemic, and right now it's a skeleton team. It's like literally mm. a handful of people, and we are recruiting people and we are procuring supplies and medications and bringing them in country, but how can we have an impact right now? Um, and we made a decision from the very beginning that we would work with the government. Uh, they were already running Ebola treatment units, so places where patients with Ebola would go and get treated. And those were patients, uh, you know, Ebola is highly contagious also mm. for providers. Yes, so, so, yes. <laughs> you're not immune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations established their own Ebola treatment units outside of the government system. And that's a very respectable choice. We felt like we couldn't do it, A, because it would have taken us months to be able to do it. Um, and also, we just felt like that here were government doctors, nurses, really heroic efforts, tremendous risk. We've got to step in and help them make the facilities where they're working safer. Um, that was a tough decision to make, but you know it was it was the right one. Mm-hmm. Uh, very proud actually that we that we that we did that. Karada, yeah. hold that thought yeah. a minute. I've got yeah. a couple follow-ups, but Dan's going to put yeah. us on a bit of a break here. That's right. We have mm. to take what they call a soft break, Mike. Okay. You're Mike Usine. I'm Ann Greenhall, <laughs> and we are speaking tonight with Dr. Corrado Conchetta, Director of Botswana UPenn Partnership and Strategic Advisor for Academic Partnerships at the Center for Global Health at Penn's. Perlman School of Medicine. This is Business Radio Partner. Sorry, this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, not or, partnered by the Wharton School. Also a partnership. partnership. <laughs> Channel 132. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Tonight, Mike Yuseem and I, Ann Greenhall, are speaking with Dr. Corrado Canchetto, Director of Botswana UPenn Partnership and Strategic Advisor for Academic Partnerships at the Center for Global Health at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. And before the break, Mike, we were talking about the Ebola epidemic, and you wanted to go back and talk a little bit more about Sierra Leone. Yes, uh Corrado, uh, just before the break, you referenced your decision and that of others that you're <clears throat> working with from uh, Partners for Health, from the UN, World Health Organization, many players, uh, Doctors Without Frontiers there as well. And partnership means you can leverage. You've got mm-hmm. many health workers. You don't own them. They don't work for you, but you can work with those mm-hmm. for whom they do work. It's got a downside, though, because the other institutions are not you. Yeah. Different rules, different selection. So in measuring the success of a partnership and the foundations for it, you've written a very nice article on that. 
talk a bit maybe about the two elements. How do you know if a partnership is working? Yeah. And then secondly, if it is working, why is it working? Yeah. That's a, oh, I could talk about this for forever. But, you know, interestingly enough, uh, the part, uh, having good partnerships is actually one of the sustainable development mm. goals. The, the, so the United Nations 2015 mm. came up with the, these 17 goals. They are sort of the North Star for international development. Mm. Um, you know, it's about global warming, poverty, inequality, health. Mm. Uh, and, and, but interestingly enough, the last uh, SDG is partnerships. And, and the idea is that to address all the other goals, you need strong partnerships because some of this, the, the problems that the planet faces, including some of the health problems, are so big mm -hmm. that yeah. without partnerships, you can't address them. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, partnerships are really important. And uh, I, I've experienced uh, several of them. And um, so what it is that makes a partnership effective? Uh, um, you know, I, uh, there's several ways in which you can measure the success of a partnership. <laughs> Let's say two partners get together to get something done. The first measure of success is if they do well what they set up to do, whether <laughs> it's training a bunch of people, treating a bunch of patients. But I think on a deeper level, it's also how different the, the two partners are at the end of at the end of whatever it is that they decide to do together. Like, has the partnership be, been transformational in a sense for the mm. institutions or organizations that decided to to enter it? And uh, should that be actually a stated goal of any partnership, not just to do something together, but like to, to transform the organizations that are participating in it in a tangible way, so that they'll be even better partners the next time around. And by the way, before we leave that point, both uh, ways. Yeah. You're going to learn from them and yeah. vice versa. So absolutely. Abso no, uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, th th this notion of capacity building, mm -hmm. right, that, uh, you know, if, if you, if, for example, if the university in the United States partners with uh, the government of a country in West Africa or a university in West Africa, that... Those those organizations in the host country need capacity building. Okay, that's that's fair. But I think institutions sometimes in the United States who want to work internationally need capacity building on how to do that well. Right. And I, I can mm. give some examples of, yeah. of, of why that is. Uh, um, um, and then you know, there's also some lessons learned uh, in 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 developing countries in the way they structure the health system they try to reach as many patients as possible in the way they try to use every dollar in the most effective way impactful way that actually might have relevance relevance here and I, so can you give one of those mm. examples Corrado? Well, very simple example yeah. i'll talk about academia okay yeah. You know, right now, if, if, if as an academic, if you want to have a career in global health, uh, the, the the career the the path mm -hmm. where there's you know funding, uh, an established way of doing things is research. Okay, you become a researcher, primarily a researcher, then you have funding, you have grants. But if you want to have a different career trajectory, more uh, more as a clinical innovator, mm -hmm. which is or as an educator, a trainer which are very viable career trajectories here in the United States, how to pay for that in global health, it's, it's, sometimes it's tricky. There's philanthropy. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it, it, people who do that, uh, they need to be very creative on how to find money. And there's not really like a blueprint. or. or, or uh. So here's a question about how you actually manage the partnerships. And I'm going to re reference a, a famous example of the way in which a joint venture between a U.S. and a Japanese auto, two automakers, how they managed a difficult-to-manage partnership. Two different continents, two different traditions, Japanese automaking quite different. It's just the way it's done from U.S. automaking. So they, it was either every six months or every 12 months, would meet in between their respective locations and not talk about emission standards or carburetor uh, capacity, but about themselves and the relationships. Mm. Yeah. Now, it turns out midway between Michigan and uh, parts of uh, Tokyo there, or it's kind of the outskirts of Tokyo, happened to be Hawaii. <laughs> so not a bad place to think no. about yeah. no. your partnership. But the point they make, and there's lots of research that points to the same thing, when you've got a joint venture, a partnership, whatever it is, you've really got to manage the mm -hmm. relations. 
So how did you do that or how do you do that now? How, how do you go about partnering? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really important. Uh, it's work. It really is, and it starts with uh, with r- really like taking time to get to know one another, and understand what the needs of your partners uh, uh, are, and being honest about mm-hmm. what what your own needs are, and then mapping a, a future together, you know, like going through some strategic planning. Uh, uh, together and then being very disciplined in sort of executing that vision, but also mm. communicating on a on a on a regular basis. I think that's that's absolutely critical. Um, like really actively investing in the relationship. Let's take uh, Sierra Leone. You worked with the Minister of Health mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone. You called her daily, weekly. You met with her. Uh, just and put us on the ground in that partnership. Yeah, uh, you know, early on because it was an uh, it was an emergency mm. response. There was actually um, a, a command and control center mm. that was run by the military, uh, mm. by by the uh, Sierra Leone, by, by the uh, UK military as well, um, and by by the Minister of Health, uh, where they sort of harmonized the contribution of all the different international uh, partners, including partners in health, but other NGOs. Uh, um, uh, as well, but then we also had our own uh, close relationship with uh, the, the 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 person who was in charge of the health system for the district where we were working. Where we, you know, we hmm. meet me. Well, in the middle of it, we would meet him every day, but otherwise, like once uh, once a week. And then in the aftermath of the Ebola epidemic, that's where the planning for. Um, for post Ebola, like uh, the planning for strengthening the health system began, mm-hmm. and uh, we sort of like laid out the vision for the future together. Mm. Um, Just my editorial comment: partnerships, we all know, are a good thing if we can effectively work with a partner. Yeah. But your statement, I think, just gets to the heart of the matter: it has to be managed. Yeah. They're not magicals. Maybe you've got an identical purpose; you want to end Ebola, save lives. But you've really got to be actively thinking about how you're working together, conversation, et cetera, et cetera. No, I mean it's a, it's a, it's it's practicalities. It's yeah. a governance structure. Is a number of recurrent meeting that someone actively facilitates, and then you circulate me, uh, minutes. It's it it is really work. Yeah. Like it, it's it's investing <laughs> in the relationship. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What I uh, very much appreciate is the two way nature. Mm-hmm. of it, that you are learning from your partner, your partner learning from you, and that it's a transformative experience. How I'm just going to press a little bit. How do you know whether or not the partnership has been transformative? Hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that that's that's a great question. I, you know, I, I, I uh, again, you, you should have metrics for it. Uh-huh. Like, uh, and, um, you know, you should look at, let's say, two organizations partner together um, and you want to understand at the end of the partnership how better off they are mm-hmm. compared to where they started. You, you, mm-hmm. you literally should have metrics for several domains within the organization, like uh, the, the technical capacity of the organization, like mm-hmm. the number of doctors, nurses, for example, if we're talking about a, a, a hospital or or number of faculty for talking about a uh, uh, university that uh, they have, and then like the enabling systems that allow the tech- people who have technical expertise to to thrive. You know, administration, yeah. uh, the, the 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 equipment, the supplies, the information technology. I mean, really tangible stuff. It's yeah. not. This is not aspirational. Like, mm-hmm. like really having precise metrics that tell us how the institutions are being strengthened, the organizations are being strengthened through the partnership. Corrado, have you had a partnership that uh, was more problematic and you found you had to go separate separate ways? Uh, never separate ways, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, uh, partnerships that might have, in retrospect, might have worked better. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, you always want to look critically at that. You know, I think 
I think it's critical to really do your homework up front and really be like being like brutally honest, uh, but constructively uh-huh. honest as well about what it is that you can and cannot do. Like don't over promise. Promise, right. Um, and, and also make sure that you really are on the same page, mm-hmm. not that it's good enough to go ahead. Because especially if, if, if uh, you're trying to achieve something that's complicated, there will be tru- there's going to be trouble down the road and so you want to make sure that you you really thought things through and mm-hmm. and that people yeah people will not feel like you have misled them or you haven't been completely transparent just lay, lay, it, lay it all out from at, at the beginning oh, very uh, good this is leadership in action on Sirius XM radio channel 132 Mike Yusim and I, Ann Greenhall, are speaking tonight with Dr. Corrado Canchetta, director of the Botswana UPenn Partnership. Corrado, earlier this week I talked at some length with the chief executive of a large company, and among the commentary offered up is that um, it's really important to help that enterprise run. It's, it's mm-hmm. a very important company for it to run well, but it's never easy. Every day has got its own set of new problems. Mm-hmm. And one way he's put it, and I've heard this in many from many different people, kind of around decision-making, if it's an easy decision, somebody else made it. It's mm-hmm. only the tough ones that end up um, yeah. on your lap. So making it now uh, more personal for you, what gives you joy in a day's work and what, what's really the hard, the hardest mm-hmm. part of a day's or a week's work? So I, I, I think there's so there's something about seeing people um, from different institutions, different countries, different walks of life working together mm-hmm. as a team to achieve a common goal. There's something <laughs> about that that I think A is quintessentially human. Uh, in fact, I would argue it's the highest, one of the mm-hmm. highest manifestations of being human. That's that's just <laughs> incredibly moving. I, I mm-hmm. yeah, that that that's it. That uh, it, it, you know, I, I, in a I sense can't explain it better. No, that's yeah. great. <laughs> it's a bit you're a, a master of diversity because that's a, <laughs> yeah. a, a different kind here. But working with people with from such disparate backgrounds mm-hmm. and different kinds of training and different kinds of language. So, uh, what's the hardest part? You know, <laughs> uh, the the hardest part, uh, you know, sometimes is uh, seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, mm. Basically, not, it's, you know, try to avoid getting caught in the day-to-day frustrations, which are inevitable, and just keep keep the eye, uh, keep the, your eyes on the prize. You know, just. Um, yeah, so, sometimes you know, like you can be get get dragged down and some of yep. the politics of it all. Just, 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 just keep the eye on the prize. Just yep. try to rise above. <coughs> that. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I at the end of the day, it, it it's really about mm. making sure that you take the time to understand how everyone on the team feels. And, and if you get a sense that there is some discontent, that you take mm. that head on and that you are always accessible and always authentic, uh, I, I, think, uh, um, I think if you, if you do this, uh, then you build relationships that are authentic and then you can weather pretty much any storm. So good. So, um, Corrado, now you've been in your in your work since July, yeah. so not even a full year at the UPenn Partnership. Yeah. Uh, just an ordinary day. Is there? A, first of all, I should ask: Is there an ordinary day? And if there is, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, not yet. That's not been, yet. It's been such a it's, <laughs> okay. a it's been such a steep learning curve. <laughs> okay. I, you know, the the first few months have really been about uh, really been about uh, understand because BUP has been there for like seventeen years, amazing legacy started by uh, by Dr. Friedman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot a lot of great work that that has been going on. So just like really acknowledging that, uh, getting to know the team, the projects, uh, getting to know the sites where we work, getting to know 
where the country is heading and, and your partners, uh, so people at the Ministry of Health and University of Botswana, getting to know other people who work in country. Um, um, Harvard is there, Baylor uh, mm. um, from, from Texas is there, a bunch of NGOs are there. Um, so it's 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 been it's been a lot of that, and then of course there's a couple of big projects that we're running that have been involved uh, in in helping move forward. Because again, uh, getting involved in day-to-day work is very grounding and informs like the the the, yeah. la- the larger vision. And 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 really, part of my job is figuring out what the next 17 years of uh, of, of you know, BUP w- will look like. Also mm-hmm. because Botswana is now trying to become a high-income country. Um, and so and, and they have some health priorities. So what, what's what's our role there? How can we sort of be good partners and, and, and steer things in that direction within the health domain? So good. So tell us about your team. How large is your team? Um, so it, it, it's uh, it's about 110 people, and uh, there's uh, th- we have some faculty in country. There's about five um, five of them in country who do great work. Uh, they do clinical care training and they do research. Um, and then we have a core operations team of local local staff, and then we have a lot of uh, um, a lot of staff that works on particular projects. Mm-hmm. Do you take our students who are not in medicine? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's, there's, there's. Uh, we have, uh, of course, medical students, and and then also nursing. residents and 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 clinical fellows. So those are physicians, but we have nursing students, we have social work students, we have PhD students. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a great learning uh, environment. Indeed. For, and so as we get close to the end of our time mm-hmm. here, again, kind of a final personal question here, for people who would like to find their way into global health, um, international (laughs) public health, and working in ways akin to what you're working, not necessarily by going into medicine, but whatever their profession may be, what's the pathway or what are the pathways you recommend to listeners here who are thinking, I'd like to do something akin to what you've been doing? You know, I I do think that... you know, if you, if you're training as a clinician, you know it could be as a nurse, or as a dentist. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like spending some time doing clinical work in the field is incredibly important. Even if you then move to bigger things or, or to systems or to strategy, to have that grounding experience of uh, of the day to day work and sharing that with your uh, colleagues is 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 really important. Just to be a little <laughs> bit, uh, I guess. Uh, discursive about it. Uh, I work with a person, an ophthalmologist, who soon after he did his residency in ophthalmology uh, went to uh, Tanzania. He's mm-hmm. in a very small village in Tanzania. And while he was there to think about people's eyes, he found he had to think about everything. Yeah. Tuberculosis, malaria, yeah. um, HIV, AIDS, and so on. And I think in some of these settings, and you really said it about your Bronx uh, yeah. experience too, that getting out there and working directly with patients, you're going to learn a lot yeah. about the human condition. And whatever you're training, you're going to have to exceed or kind of move beyond that that particular specialty yeah. that you arrive with. What, what do you think? No, a hundred percent, and even beyond the, your, your own like discipline, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you mentioned the Bronx because I would argue another false dichotomy yeah. in global health is working in sure. the United States yeah. versus working working abroad because it's really about reaching the patients who are the most vulnerable, <laughs> who have the least access to care. And again, sometimes to really have an impact, it's, it's about uh, making sure they have a job, they have a house, that they have <laughs> psychosocial support. And that's not stuff that as a, as a clinician you can provide, but you can have a, a team around you that provides provides that. All right, so Corrado, we have just a couple minutes, and you've heard about my one son, Sam, who's in Lesotho for a yeah. wedding, college friend. Uh, so advice for me for my son, Tom, who is yeah. interested in sustainability yeah. and trying to figure out the angle in. He's interested mm-hmm. in food and agriculture, so he just shared with me that he wants to work on organic farms, mm-hmm work his way up through South America and into the United States in order to learn about farming 
literally and figuratively from the ground up. What do you think? I think it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I think you should be very proud. I think it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's super. And while he's at it, he thought he could learn Spanish. He is now at home trying to teach himself. Actually, as he would say, you do not study a foreign language. One acquires a foreign language. <laughs> so that's what he's doing. All right, so so uh, thumbs up on that. I can go home after the Absolutely. show and tell yeah. him he's on a good track. He's on a wonderful track. Okay, very good. Thank you. That means a lot. Well, Mike, we have just a couple minutes. Would you like to do just a short uh, after-action review, totally. as is our custom? So, Corrado, our, our custom, as Anne just said, is to uh, for us just to reflect for a couple yeah. seconds. If you don't mind, we're going to just think out loud about what we ought to hang on to from these two really interesting discussions. So, Anne, you want to start? Yeah, well, just how about just to recap, and Mike, you can chime in. In the first hour, we had Ken Koshenda, and he was the author of Creative Selection about inside Apple's design process during the golden age of Steve Jobs. And you know right now here we've been speaking with Dr. Corrado Conchetta, director of Botswana UPenn Partnership, about his experience in the field of global health. So, Mike, what comes to mind? I think from Ken, what is really kind of salient as I've uh, reflected on our conversation and, and part of his book is the importance of just looking at the facts, working the facts, and don't get stalled with the facts. Make a decision. Yeah. Get on with it. Uh, cycle times are getting shorter. We've got to become more disciplined about actually facing up and making data-informed decisions now. Uh, I think from uh, Corrado, I'm uh, especially impressed with uh, some of his commentary on partnerships mm. mm-hmm. because through partnerships, we leverage. We've got our our people, our health workers in his case, but think about the health ministry in Sierra Leone or think about the army of uh, Liberia that uh, like in Sierra Leone uh, got involved as well. How about all the international groups, uh, including the World Health Organization. And it is amazing what you can achieve if you commit to working together. And then this is the hard work of management and leadership, ensuring that indeed you work together. That's great, Mike. And I can't help but smile because uh, when I think of you, I think about decision making. (laughs) So I really love that you uh, pulled out uh, the decisiveness from our first guest. And partnerships. And Mike, when I think of you, I also think about your work on boards and how important it is to collaborate and work on others. So thank you for that. Now, you know me well, and I like to think about themes. Themes, Hmm. that's the literary side. And in our first, uh, in the first hour with Ken Kashenda on creative selection, uh, he he did talk about the importance of empathy, Mike, and about as an engineer, software engineer, putting yourself in the shoes of the ordinary everyday user. And when I asked uh, this evening, uh, uh, Corrado Conchetta, <laughs> about you know what was critical in the medical education that served him well throughout his career, he mentioned the importance of listening, which I think is really very same, close. Same point. So to our listeners, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed tonight's show on Leadership in Action with Mike Useem and myself, Ann Greenhall, and our wonderful guests. We want to thank also our engineer, Jeffrey Simmons, for playing the role of both the producer and the engineer at once. So that's really wonderful. So this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Come back next week. We look forward to speaking with you. Take care. Take care.